Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Gretchen Bakke, assistant professor at University of Toronto and author of The Grid, and we'll be discussing whether or not America's 125-year-old power grid is ready for the 21st century. So welcome to Energy Talks, Gretchen. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Now, this is a, a fascinating uh, topic, and I will start off the podcast with a little bit of a plug for your book, The Grid. You came out in 2016, but one of the most engaging and interesting books I've seen on power grids, and it deals primarily with the U.S. power grid, but anybody who's interested in this uh, is issue, uh, I think your book is required reading. Thank you. And I, I think that what needs to be said too for your listeners from the very start is that I'm a cultural anthropologist. I'm not uh, an electrical engineer or, or an engineer. So I had to learn a lot uh, in order to re write the book. But the point of the book and a lot of what I have to say is that the grid, we make the grid, we give it its shape. We're the ones who decide how it's going to work and for whom. Um, and so it's really a, I treat it really as a cultural object. Um, not also a technological object, but um, most people don't think of it that way. Well, uh, on, all, on behalf of all of your readers, thank you for not writing like an engineer. Uh, that being said, it is a very, from uh, as far as I can tell, a technically sound uh, analysis. And so uh, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Well, let's start off with the question of how do you define the grid? Is it generation, transmission, and distribution? Is it all, you know, Parts of those, how do you define it? So I define it very broadly. Um, so generation for sure, transmission for sure, um, substations for sure, distribution for sure, but then also bringing it all the way into the home. So um, into the toaster, into the uses, the, all of the machines that use electricity, um, the idea that, um, actually electricity is moving in a giant loop. So it's coming from a power plant, it's going through the things that use it and it's going back out to the power plant again. And of course now um, also all the things that sort of make their daily return to the grid. So your telephone, um, I consider to be part of the grid. Um, it's, it sits in your pocket, you carry it around, but you have this little detachable piece of the electric grid um, that you carry with you. and electric cars as well. And I think there are people who are really beginning to think about these um, things that don't seem to be plugged in a lot of the time as also resources to the grid. Um, so the grid itself is kind of, kind of coming to bits and moving around and then coming back um, and plugging in again, returning to, returning to the source. Um, so I think of it very, very, very broadly. And um, also in terms of the, I think one of the things that's important to think about is that the grid is designed to keep us human beings separated from electricity. So that it's a, it's a giant machine for powering other smaller machines, um, but we don't touch it. Um, and all of those machines are very sort of carefully made, uh, except the toaster, of course, to make sure that we don't hurt ourselves um, by interacting with electricity. Well, on that, I actually have a little a little story I, I'm going to tell viewers, and uh, people who don't like me will appreciate this one in particular. Uh, 
when I grew up in a man, in a hydro town in northern Manitoba, my dad worked for Manitoba Hydro, and I, after right after high school, I went to work in the converter station because I can never remember if it was you had to convert it from DC to AC or AC to DC for transmission. It's one of those. And back in those days, this is uh, 1977, 78. You did that not with transistors, and you did it with mercury arc valves. Very old technology. And uh, I got promoted, uh, and I was working in the in the uh, uh, converter in the lab where they re uh, they uh, refurbished and repaired these mercury arc valves. And one morning, about two o'clock, I get called out. One of the valves had gone down in the valve hall, and the electrician and I had to go out and work on it. And I was half asleep, and I reached in with my nut driver and shorted out a capacitor at about 550 volts. And I'll never forget the feeling of that much electricity going up my arm and my hair stood on end and it threw me back. And I, I was, I've not, I've been very careful around electricity ever since. So kids, if you're listening to this story, do not be sticking your fork in the, in the toaster. That, that's the moral, <laughs> of the moral of the story. It hurts. Or your wrench in the capacitor. <laughs> yes, exactly. Could have been something, uh, well, could have been worse, I guess. It was low, low amperage, so it didn't, it didn't kill me, thank goodness, but it hurt. Now, what are, in the, the, the U.S. current grid, we often hear discussion about how it's old and aging, and it's, you know, what are its top two or three deficiencies? Well, I think age is a piece of it, um, but not age by itself isn't such a giant problem. You, the grid is always being... Um, modified and kept up and um, modernized. Um, but the age in relationship to um, moving away from certain sorts of power plants, um, namely very large um, coal burning power plants to a lesser degree nuclear power plants, you see this in some places, and those not being replaced with the same size uh, or location of power plant. It seems really simple because uh, one of, you know, it's not just about fossil fuels. Um, Natural gas power plants are quite much smaller, and they're they're sort of distributed around. Um, then wind uh, is often in, just built in very different places than you would have a coal burning power plant because the you build wind where the wind blows, um, whereas a coal burning power plant you build where you can get the coal too easily. Um, and then solar, of course, being the big one, which is just built everywhere, um, small scale solar. So what that means is that the grid, which is old but reasonably robust for um, these the older plate locations and ways of producing electricity is not very well suited to these sort of smaller and different smaller plants distributed plants and different ways of making electricity i would say that's the big one right now so that every upgrade has to take into consideration um, the fact that a, a a replacement for one kind of power plant is simply not the same um, it, from the grid's point of view, not the same as the um, power plant that is kind of going away. One, two, um, the natural environment is changing. So you have problems like in Northern California, we see the forests which are sort of with climate change slowly co converting themselves to savanna. Um, and they do that by burning down and the, then you have an aging power grid that sparks, all power grids spark. That's one of the things that happens, but they, they spark into the sort of tinder that, that just um, 
just erupts in fire um, from almost any any cause. So you have you have that. You have I mean in Miami just recently there was groundwater just came up um, and and flooded. You have you know if you have any kind of transformers at ground level. Um, all of these kinds of problems, Texas, right, um, where a bunch of really <laughs> system really nicely built for hot was suddenly subjected to um, extreme cold about a year ago. So this is the the grid is very, very local. It's designed for um, the sort of natural environment within which it functions. Um, and as that environment changes, then the grid also has to change. And I think that's really Flummox's people. It's a it's an engineering problem, but it's also it's an intellectual problem too, um, because we don't know what the what the weather will, will bring in some ways. We can't quite predict it. Um, that's two. Um, there could be more, but I would say those are the two big ones. Sure. Well, let's, let's talk about distributed energy resources, because in California, for instance, we see a huge debate over rooftop solar. And they're producing so much rooftop solar that there are uh, critics like uh, Professor uh, Severin Bornstein from, uh, from uh, Berkeley, who actually sits on Casio, the California system operator, who are saying, no, 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 we don't have to back off. We're, we're building too much rooftop solar right now. The system can't handle it. And then you've got self-generation for uh, commercial customers where you've got utilities uh, who are very afraid that their larger uh, customers are going to self-generate either with wind, but usually it's, it's with solar, and either completely remove themselves from the grid or greatly reduce the amount of electricity. And of course, you know, the loss of a big industrial customer or a number of those customers can be quite devastating to a utility's revenue and, and to their system. So what, what about the effect of intermittent renewables? Yeah, so I'm going to answer the second question first, and then I'll go to the first question. Um, big industrial customers have been making their own power forever. Um, and I grew up near a, a paper mill in rural Oregon, and they um, they they created their they used their own made their own electricity. Um, they used a lot of it, and they sold a lot of it back into the grid. And cogeneration has been actually the same piece of legislation in the 1970s that um, made it possible for us to have renewables on the grid, sort of <laughs> hurrah for that one. I don't know if you've gotten to that chapter yet, but it's like, it's sort of this incredible moment um, with this very, very boring, very, very long piece of legislation makes it possible for small uh, renewable producers to begin to sell electricity to customers um, via the big utilities. And cogeneration really took advantage of that too. So there has always been uh, electricity made privately. I think what the utilities are worried about, and by, by privately, I mean by big hot factories make electricity. What the utilities are worried about is that um, these customers will actually withdraw their um, purchasing of electricity from the utility. And the, this is something that's important to say about the electric grid. Most of your listeners probably know this, but electricity is used immediately upon production, more or less. So it's very, very fresh, I like to say. Um, and that means that the amount of electricity you make and the amount which is used need to be in balance all of the time. And when you have a big customer, that's really useful to the utility because they can discuss um, the amount of electricity that is being consumed with that customer. It makes it very easy for them to plan. And even easier if they're making electricity with something like um, hydro or wood, um, sort of uh, waste wood or coal or natural gas, 
because again, the you this is called we call it baseload generation, but um, the it it allows the utility to plan how much electricity is being made. So I think the fear, and there's been a lot of fear over the last 20 years with the changes coming to the electric grid for the utility system, the fear is that they'll lose this small amount of control, which is one of the last things they have control over left. Um, there's been a leakage of utility control for two decades now. And um, so if, 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 power, if large factories decide to go off the grid, then, um, you know, so be it, like, like we'll figure it out. <laughs> I think it's not, a, it's not a problem for the grid, it's a problem for the utility companies. The first question I think is a lot more fun. Um, and that um, too much solar, first of all, Australia has been dealing with this for a while. So we have somebody to, whose footsteps we can follow in. Second, there's a lag. Um, we're, we're in the middle of a lag and that lag is the, is hydrogen production. Um, so as what happens with renewables, um, it's this very different logic than we're used to. We're used to from the 20th century, a logic of scarcity. How are we gonna have enough oil? How are we gonna have enough na natural gas? Um, can, can, you know, do we have enough coal? Can we, do we have enough gas for our cars? And one of the things that renewables um, like wind and solar, not all renewables, but like wind and solar do is that they have a tendency to produce excess. And this is a very new problem for the electricity grid. Um, and so if, they're produ if you're producing at noon in Phoenix, for example, or in Los Angeles too much solar power, um, in theory, it can crash the grid. It can actually lead to a, a blackout on the grid. Um, so you need to use that excess somehow, or you need to shut off generation, which is silly because you're producing a lot of electricity, right? So <laughs> you don't want to shut off generation. You want to produce that electricity. And what will come, and I can say this with a certain degree of certainty right now, is that um, that excess production capacity will be stored chemically in hydrogen. So we'll start making, it's an insanely inefficient process. You would never burn a fossil fuel to make hydrogen, but if you have excess wind and you have excess solar, you can actually make hydrogen from the air and that you can store. Um, and hydrogen is, a, people sometimes call it liquid solar, in fact. Um, it is something you can build an engine to run on. So you can actually have hydrogen powered cars, airplanes, um, large ships. Uh, all of these things. So I think there's not a problem, there's just a, a slowness or a gap uh, in, the te in technology, sort of the rollout of technology. What do you make of this big project in Los Angeles where a number of partners have gotten together, corporate partners, the city of Los Angeles? I, I, I can't remember the exact name. I think it's Hydrogen LA, something like that. They're gonna build a big hydrogen hub. They're gonna use this cheap solar to make hydrogen during the day, store it. And then at night, they're going to feed, they're, eventually they'll, they'll change over, they'll adapt the current natural gas plants uh, to, to burn hydrogen, which apparently is, is relatively easy and cost-effective. And then when, when uh, you know, night or when the wind's not blowing, whatever, they'll, then they'll feed this hydrogen into those plants and, and generate power that way. And that, I thought that was a very clever model if they can make it work. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. Um, and that's why I mean, like, we're figuring out these pieces as we go. Um, we had to have too much solar 
in order to start to think about, okay, what can we do with all that extra solar? Um, hydrogen doesn't burn exactly the same way that natural gas does. Um, it burns in a different, it's, it also explodes, but uh, it, it explodes at a different part of the process. So you actually have to build um, a different uh, combustion system. Um, and it also works really differently when it's in a cold environment than when it's in a hot environment, which means that if, when you turn on a hydrogen burning plant, um, you have to have your engine basically has to work in one way. And as it warms up, it has to work in another way. So there are things to be worked out right in this. But the basic idea um, in Los Angeles is fantastic because you have all the sun during the day. So you have a ton of solar during the day, you produce hydrogen with it, the excess. But then you have all of this um, late afternoon wind. And this doesn't happen in very many places. So for example, in Texas, the wind is at night. Um, and there's just not that many people to use electricity at night. You could make tons of wind. I mean, you want tons of wind power um, and there's nobody to use it. So this is why sometimes factories now are paid in Texas to, to work at night. Um, essentially, they, they are getting money to use electricity to keep the grid safe. Um, but in Los Angeles, it tends to be in the late afternoon and early evening that the winds blow. And that means that just as the sun is going down, you have this second renewable that comes in. And this is the big demand period. Um, as we know, this is when people come home from work, but some people are still at work. And so you have, everybody has their power on, they're opening their fridge, they're closing their fridge, they're turning on their TV, they're doing the dishes. Like, it's just, and then it slumps off around 10 o'clock. Um, so that you actually don't need to be producing that much electricity. I don't know how much hydrogen you can get um, from the excess solar, but you don't need to produce that much electricity in the, at nighttime because we don't use that much. Um, and in fact, a lot of the electricity we use at night, we use at night because a, a, a fossil fuel power plant works better when you keep it on all the time. Works better. What I mean is it makes more money. Um, if you keep it on all the time. So there, was, there were a lot of tariffs that were put into place that, that convinced people to use electricity, especially um, large manufacturers to use electricity at, at night um, so that to support the fossil fuel power plants. So that to those tariffs change. Um, and suddenly we, don't, we have street lights, um, people charge their cars, that changes something. But um, by and large, it's a very viable plan. Well, let's talk about all of that distributed energy uh, changing or changing the, the way utilities operate. And there's a lot of discussion down in the US. And for my Canadian listeners, uh, this will be almost entirely foreign because Canada is still, you know, 10 separate, uh, almost fiefdoms. Every province has got their own electricity system. They're more often than not. Uh, they're run by a provincially owned, government owned crown corporation that has a monopoly. It's been like that for 125 years. And this idea of re-engineering the utility model is just foreign. We're not even, we're not even talking about it. Everybody's talking about it in the US from what I can tell. Basically taking that old cost of service vertically integrated market and flattening it. So it, almost making the utility like a platform in which many people, many buyers and sellers can can tra transact uh, their their you know they're buying and selling on the platform. What what's your take on that? Yeah, so the 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 Canada point is really I think kind of um, delightful or it's really I would say it's amazing how different um, the the current situation is in Canada and the U.S. Um, and I think U.S. Uh, listeners don't know this, nor do Canadian listeners know this. So I was living in Quebec. Um, in Montreal when I was writing the book and I kept 
flying to the US to do research and then coming home to Montreal and just being in this completely different world when it came to uh, electricity provision, um, the relationship between a company, especially Hydro-Quebec in, in Quebec, the relationship between the company and the province, um, sort of the politics of energy, the promise of energy, um, the quality of the infrastructure in Quebec is fantastic. Um, so the same storm, like, you know, I don't know, wipes out all of Vermont completely for 10 days and, and Quebec, you know, it's, some people are down for a little while. Um, so I think all of these things um, really matter. And it's nice that you point it out um, because most people don't think about it. Um, in, the, in the US, um, there are many people trying to figure out how to make money um, as things change. Um, and one of the things they tend to forget about in this process when we start to talk about platforms um, is that you need the infrastructure. So you can't run, uh, you can't sell electricity if you don't have a grid, um, which is to say the wires, right? The production mechanism, the transit mechanism, the meters, all of these things matter. Um, and what I see rarely happening, but occasionally happening is that the utilities are being invited to the table for these discussions. So for a decade, there was a lot of conversation about how to reform the electricity system and nobody was talking about to the people who, who managed the wires and knew how to manage the wires, um, knew how to not overload them. You can't just um, decide that you're gonna make electricity somewhere and, and ship it 500 miles away um, because it, it, electricity doesn't work that way. Yeah, so you have to be you you have to be thinking about where things are being made, how far they're going, what the uses are, and the utilities are the one who know for the moment how to do all of that. Um, there are many many startups in this area, um, and they might be good at understanding money and technology, but they're not very good at understanding electricity. Um, if every so often I meet someone who can think money and think electricity, but it is a rare skill to be able to do that um, and to put those two things together. So you have a group of people who can think electricity but aren't so great with money, utilities, and a group of people who can think money but aren't so great with, with uh, electricity. And together, this idea of creating a kind of sim symbiotic uh, platform-like relationship is not going great, um, but a think people are kind of understand that that's where it's going anyway. Um, so this is a trend that we'll see develop over time, maybe slowly for the, in the short to, me, to maybe medium term, but eventually that the, the, the trend in technologies and policy uh, and so on will probably push us in that, in that direction. Yeah, and just that if you have solar panels on your roof, um, why, not, why not sell that electricity person to person? Right, and that's true if you're Walmart or if you're, you know, you or me. Um, and so the using, beginning to think of the wires as a way of transacting energy, which is radically distributed. The reason we need to think that way is because electricity production didn't used to be radically distributed, right? So where we make electricity is now on the distribution grid, um, not entirely, but way more than it ever was. Um, and where we use it is on the distribution grid. So there's there's no reason for us not to be interacting with each other. There's no reason to go through a utility, um, but there's every reason not to let you and me manage the actual infrastructure. 
Um, and I think this is especially true. You look at in California, you know, and with the fires, it's like you just PG and E went bankrupt, but you don't want everybody who's left over who's like has solar panels to, to be running an electricity system in a place that goes, you know, and PG is still there, but they're in bankruptcy protection, as your listeners probably know. But um, this idea that it can go all the way down to the individual is not not necessarily right um, or not necessarily the most functional way to go about reforming the system. Right. But there is a lot of chatter about things like microgrids, community uh, solar and, and wind generation, those sorts of issues. And a lot of that is is driven by the fact that there's now there's new technologies out there that will allow us to do those sorts of things. And and in addition to all of that, there are many new technologies, uh, digital technologies and and software and artificial intelligence and machine learning and so on that also are being uh, introduced into the, uh, uh, into the grid and changing the way utilities and everybody else uh, does business. And I, that's one thing, I don't uh, think folks outside of, you know, who aren't paying attention to what's going on in this sector, don't appreciate how technology is really transforming the, uh, the, the, the sector. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, I've, and, and we tend to bandy about this term, the internet of things, but there is a way in which the complexity of um, the technology now that the smartness, I'm not so sure about this word, but we can say like the communicative capacity of technology these days to talk between itself um, is a, a, a real resource, um, but it's still hard for us to imagine ourselves out of those communication processes. It's called man in loop. Um, and we like man in loop, which is that, that you know information comes in, a human being looks at that information and presses a button and then something else happens, right? And what we start to really see um, with the, in, the smartening of all of these devices is that the man is, is being cut out of the loop and that makes everything way faster. Um, but it feels, it's also scary um, because the, the, the communication that the machines have with each other um, just to, they just don't really think, especially when we talk about electricity, they don't really think or act like we do. They don't reason like we do. Um, they might reason better. <laughs> yeah, or if we build them well, they might reason better. But um, this then creates capacity for change within the system, which is absolutely inconceivable. Right. Well, let's talk about distribution down at the neighborhood level. And this is a constant topic of conversation in electric vehicle groups. You know, everybody wants to buy an electric vehicle. And then the next question they ask is, well, if I plug in, uh, you know, I get a rapid charger and you get a rapid charger next door and my the neighbor on the other side of me gets a rapid charger, what point do we blow the, the neighborhood transformer? And, you know, we've just uh, blew a big hole in our, our neighborhood infrastructure. Uh, what, what's your take on that? So, when everything first started to go really strongly toward renewables, there was this terrible fear um, that somehow nobody would use electricity anymore. So we'd be making all this electricity, but nobody would be using it. And then there was this moment of complete joy that came three or four years later when everyone realized that this thing called electrification was gonna come and it was gonna make everybody use really a lot of electricity um, for all kinds of things that we used to use liquid fuels for. Uh, and that is now, those two things are sort of coming together now in um, what I would say is, is and should be a technological worry. 
um, which is to say, if you're producing electricity largely on the distribution grid with solar um, during the day, if your car is plugged in at that time, there's not a problem. It actually helps, right? If you plug your car in during the, during the day. But what they're finding is that people plug their car in at exactly the time that we do everything else, which is when we get home from work. Um, so people aren't charging their cars necessarily at night and people, which, you know, then if you're, if you have a fossil fuel power plant, um, which then you might as well use gas in your car, but let's say that you have a, or a nuclear power plant, you're still producing a lot of electricity at night, then that's fine. You need something to take electricity off the grid at night. So that's great. Ontario, you're good, right? Nuclear power, electric cars, great, great, great match. Um, but anywhere else, um, the issue is that we don't think about the grid as a time of day resource. Um, we just use electricity when we want, and we were trained to do it that way because the utilities used to make money the more power we used. Um, they don't necessarily anymore. Yeah, And so the, the issue with something like an electric car, which has a, a pretty big, big draw on it, is how you then um, deal with our proclivity to just plug it in when we want to plug it in and to fast charge it because it didn't occur to us, right? And technological fixes like you have on your phone or I have on my phone that's, you know, I plug it in. It's like, I'm now slow charging, it says to me. I'll be done at seven o'clock in the morning, you know? Um, so a car can do that too. Uh, right, and I, I, think, I, I, interviewed yeah. a, I interviewed an engineer who uh, specializes in uh, municipal bylaws around this, this issue. And his opinion was that down the road, uh, we'll figure this out with battery management systems that will tell the car when to, char to charge at the right time. But maybe you can override it if you need to, you know, like if you need to charge when you get home, you need to quick charge to go somewhere else, those sorts of things. But basically after 10 o'clock, you know, the software will tell, uh, you know, the system when it it's going to charge the car as opposed to, to the owner. Exactly. And the other thing is that we presume that we're still going to own cars the way that we do now. Um, but what, what we're seeing is that, especially in urban areas, is that the car share programs are really taking off. And what that means is a car is actually a resource which is gonna be in use a lot more than a car is when it's privately owned. A privately owned car sits around almost all the time. Um, and so there's fewer cars, but they're used, that more of their time is spent moving around. Um, and as those cars become electrified, which again is something that's, that's beginning to happen, um, there might be a drastic reduction in traffic. Uh, yeah, there's quite a few people, I li I'm living in Germany right now, um, and there are more and more people every year I know that simply don't have their own car in the urban environment. Um, because there's, you know, you get the app and there are, there's five of these things on your block. Um, right. I, I know within, uh, we live in a, a small city on Vancouver Island in Canada, and we're already this spring, we're looking at getting electric bikes. Then in a couple of three years down the road, when we're ready, we'll buy, we'll trade in our two gas powered cars for one electric vehicle. And now the electric bike and the electric car will be our transportation model. And if we need something else, you know, for short term, we'll rent it. And, and so we, that's really quite a, a big departure from the way, you know, historically uh, families have organized their, their transportation needs. Yeah, and I think this is where we really start to see the, the, the ways in which our own lives will begin to shift with something as simple as like, let's not make electricity with coal, let's make it with solar. 
and it's it trickles down if it goes slow enough you almost don't see it happening but it sort of just trickles down to a new relationship with something um, as simple as going to the grocery store right well let's talk about storage because i uh, a couple of days ago i interviewed uh jenny jorgensen who's a systems engineer with the national renewable energy laboratory in colorado and she had just completed a study that basically said uh if if uh, the U.S. can go from the current 20 gig gigawatts of storage it, it has now to a minimum of 125 gigawatts or maybe a maximum of 600, depending on how the system evolves over time. It can basically, the whole thing can run with renewables and whatever other base load it's got, like hydro. And that's I, that's a bit of a, a radical idea because there are still plenty of folks, including utilities, who are adamant there has to be base load all over the place. What's your take on that uh, debate? I think we need way less storage than we think we do. So I, I would be with her on this. I think there's a lot of balancing what we can do, and I think there's a lot of attitude changing we can do. Um, in terms of this, what I was talking about before, that we've been sort of trained by the fact that we we were using baseload to have this expectation that, that electricity is available to us all the time, but um, this is not necessary. It does it's it's not necessary? It's actually not necessary, um, but it's something that we're going to have to learn to think about a little bit differently. I think so. Um, yeah, if she's including hydrogen as chemical storage in there, I see absolutely no reason um, why this wouldn't be completely possible yeah um, i think when we're talking about only battery storage then um it's a lot of batteries and there is a there is a sort of piece of me that's always looking at where the that battery production is just toxic to certain environments um so if there are ways in which we can um build a renewably powered electricity system which then becomes as we have all electric transport and hydrogen transport, a renewably powered energy system without making giant toxic dumps um, in various parts of the world where we need to get this material from, I think that would be better. Um, so I'm kind of all for modes of storage that don't, um, don't necessarily depend on batteries. Batteries are, will be essential, um, but where we can think beyond batteries, we should. Right, and I think we should we should note in passing. We don't talk about it a lot, but note in passing that the battery recycling technology now is up to ninety-five to one hundred percent of the battery goes back into the next generation of batteries. We're seeing Lifecycle in Mississauga, Ontario, is one of the leading developers of that that technology. And uh, I I just saw a news story uh, yesterday about how the US government is putting a big emphasis on sustainability and recycling in its battery strategy. So I think here's an, in it's interesting that this industry is now hitting its growth stage at a point where people are saying, hey, circular economy, and it has to be sustainable. And that principle is sort of being baked into the, into the cake. Yeah, and that's, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, and the, the idea of, um, sustainability as being something like non-exhaustion, I always find really nice <laughs> when I'm when I'm very tired and everyone around me is very tired to think about like, okay, what is what are the what are all of the ways we can think about exhaustion, exhausting resources, exhausting people, um, you know, ex ex sort of exhausting the, the exhausting the land, it's just exhaustion in general. Um, and the 
when you start to talk about reusing um, materials in that way and thinking about that from the very start, uh, we tend to think of it as circular, but it is in a way we're not exhausting a mineral resource um, because, or you know, we're not having to mine more lithium because we actually have lithium. We're mining lithium from the batteries that we have as opposed to mining new lithium and making new batteries. Um, and then thus not exhausting those resources. And that's just very heartening um, because of course we throw away a lot of stuff that we could begin to think about as a mineable, right? <laughs> In this very weird way. I made scare quotes for people who are um, only listening to this. Now, I, I mentioned the role of the, uh, the federal government in the United States, uh, and that brings us to the role of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And I want to point out for our Canadian listeners that this is, Canada does not have the equivalent of this. In Canada, it's a decentralized federation. You have 10 provincial and three territorial systems that are independent. The, pro the, the provinces have their own regulators. And they're just now, we'll see it in a couple of months, actually, uh, the federal government's going to convene a pan-Canadian grid council to talk about more integration and more discussion, you know, more east-west electricity trade. But that's not the way it is in the U.S. at all. FERC plays a much bigger role in this. So what's your take on FERC's uh, uh, future role? Yeah, so FERC, it... Um... It actually governs cross-state um, electricity um, transfer. So there are places like Texas that are, are not essentially governed by FERC because they make their own electricity and they don't transfer it, it across state borders. Um, and FERC is also only one of many different completely chaotic and weird layers of regulation that happened in the US, um, which we will not go into, but it's absolutely hysterical if you're ever interested um, in such a thing. So um, FERC is a conservative organization, but it's also an organization that wants the best for the grid and for the, the functionality of the electricity system as a national thing. So this idea that you have, you have universal electrification, that means all people have access to the same quality of electricity all the time. And this is not every country commits to this. Um, most of the countries we interact with do, but it's actually a very, very strong social stand um, that you do not leave people behind. Um, even people who are too poor um, to pay for this electricity or who can pay for it plenty well, but because they're so dispersed, the utility can never make any money off them because they, they have to pay so much money to upkeep the, the infrastructure. So um, FERC, struggles with these two roles, I would say, of wanting to make everything very, very solid and functional and also wanting to assist with the liberalization. Um, and occasionally they, they pass one of the most recent orders, I think it's 666, I don't, no, it can't be 666, what is it? Where they allowed the, that would be terrible, Never mind. Um, where they allowed the, the private construction of um, transmission lines. Um, so we tend to think about private construction of power plants as being kind of a radical thing or that um, that you could put solar on your house as being kind of a radical thing. But now in the US, a private company can construct a transmission line. Um, and what happens with that is that you get companies then that promise to um, only connect renewable resources, um, only to feed their line with renewable resources. And then you have customers on the other end of that line who pay for that so that they know they're getting 100% renewable power. 
Um, this is really, it was a very radical act. So um, it's a balancing act um, for them, but in my experience, their heart is really in the right place. And uh, FERC is going to play a, a major role, as I understand it, in the expansion of regional electricity markets. And we see that in the uh, in Western U.S., uh, the um, expansion of the, the states, uh, where they're adding new states into that Western electricity market. They're adding different types of markets, you know, day ahead markets and, and so on. Uh, and again, contrasted very, I mean, Canada is just, you know, 180 degrees different because uh, Alberta has a market, which is looks more like an American market. Ontario has a hybrid and that doesn't work very well kind of kind of uh, market. And then the rest are all uh, monopolies, you know, where the utility basically, there is no market because there's only one generator. And, but that is not the case in the US markets. Are, and, and it appears to me, Gretchen, that the markets are just becoming more and more important because if you have intermittent like uh, uh, generation, then you have to price that. And pricing becomes very important and, and delivering it uh, and using markets to deliver it becomes very, very important. So what's your take on all of that? I mean, I think it's part of the platform platformification of the electric grid, right? Is this um, that you're transiting electricity and you're transiting money um, simultaneously. It also does help um, for funding. Um, in some cases, it helps for funding renewables, uh, the construction of renewables. In some cases, like the Texas, which has a ferocious market, um, it means that there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of investment in upkeeping the infrastructure. So they can, it can have different effects to have this like very, very active, negative and positive effects, very, very active market um, structure. But um, this is something that I keep trying to, I'm originally from Oregon, um, which is, and I'm from the Western part of Oregon. So it's, whenever I talk to people there, they're always like, capitalism is terrible. We should have electricity grids without capitalism. And I, I always, they don't say it quite like that, but it's kind of this feeling and the, I always say, yeah, but the, the, the history of the electricity grid is capitalism. It's always been capitalism um, in, in, the, in the US case. And um, it, it still is. So I think the question is, how do we get the people who are interested in making money off the grid to facilitate the decarbonization of the grid? That's the question I would ask. So if you're gonna design an energy market, it can't only be for some people to make money off of it. It also has to have this other goal um, which is to make that making money actually benefit the system as a whole. Well, speaking of the system as a whole, uh, two weeks ago, the Department of Energy launched Building a Better Grid. And of course, this was set up under the legislation, the infrastructure legislation that was passed in November by Congress and then signed by, uh, by President Biden. And this is uh, two, uh, $20 billion, I think, is the primary pot of money. But then there are all sorts of other little associated pots of money that'll go into you know, pet projects or the, there are different kinds of processes, that, that sort of thing. Uh, what's your general take on building a better grid initiative? So when I first started researching the grid and all people were doing all the time was protesting transmission lines, this was like the way that people interacted with their utility was to protest anybody wanting to build a transmission line. Um, the plan that was sort of like, we can have a stable and renewable grid if we have this high voltage transmission system that we lay over our existing grid 
people kept telling me that and there were maps of it. It was this beautiful thing. Um, and I was like, this will never get built. Like nobody wants these lines, it cannot be done. Um, and curiously <laughs> with this new plan, it looks like that's what they're gonna build. Um, that's a piece of it, right? It's, it was then called a super grid. We don't call it that anymore. Um, so part of, it makes everything a lot easier if you have a ro robust um, and expansive uh, high voltage transmission system. So if they can pull that off, great. The other thing though that is happening is that we see, um, they also have a, a program called the Energy Shed Program. Um, and this is a weird term. It always makes me think of a hut with, that produces electricity, but that's not what they mean. What they mean is it's like a watershed so that you um, essentially are working with the electricity again locally. Um, and that means that it's produced in different ways in different environments. Um, you're working with the electricity which is produced in your locale to power that location. So we're getting both a sort of larger um, group larger high voltage transmission grid, which is a stabilizing system. It's sort of skeletal in a way, and also a new attitude toward local production and consumption. Um, and these things are happening simultaneously and how they will actually inter interact with each other. I think across this scale from the, from the quite small to the very, very big um, is a question. Um, and even if we need how much we need that intermittent scale that we used to really depend on, um, we might we might not need that so much as we as we used to if they build this big grid and these small renewable sort of energy sheds. Right. I mean, they're talking about uh, there have been studies that estimate you know uh, anywhere from sixty percent more transmission capacity up to two or three times as much transmission transmission capacity depending on how that all plays out. Now, one of the things that I found really interesting uh, in going over the build, Building a Better Grid initiative is uh, the uh, report that's made, made available that, that describes the initiative doesn't say a lot about technology. It's not a very technical document, but there is a very high, a large emphasis on things like planning, regional planning, coordination, making sure that lots of stakeholders are at the table, that people aren't being left out. And uh, that, is that a, 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 new, a new thing? I, th I think that the utility, um, no large monopoly utility, which is what we had in the US exclusively in, through the 1970s and which you still have in Canada, um, is very good with customer service. Um, or even recognizing that, custom, that customers are a group of individuals who don't all have that, when you aggregate them, you lose information actually. Um, so social justice then becomes a piece of that, which is that how do you serve um, particular communities well? And um, I, I recall, I don't know if it's this piece of legislation or another one, but um, there, there was something recently that was the idea was who is who is suffering the most in the current system um, from the the worst grid. Like you look to the place where the things are the worst for the grid, um, and you start there. Yeah, and this is it's in this way of thinking of com communities as um, truly made up of different people 
um, with different values and different needs. And then, be, then if, you're, if you're thinking about producing electricity on a, on a more local level, um, taking those things into account so that the social good or social justice becomes a part of, of this kind of ground up um, movement. And this is great because we've moved from when the, the grid book was finished in 2016, people were still talking about early, early adopters. You know, um, and now they're not anymore. Now we're talking about how everyone can be served um, by this shift in technology away from fossil fuel dependence. Well, Gretchen, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I uh, really appreciate your insights and we'll look forward to having you back on Energy Talks in the future. Good, thank you. When I write the next book. <laughs> <laughs>